Part Three, Chapter Seven of Doctor Doolittle's Post Office by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three, Chapter Seven, Tutu's Story. All the animals had now told a story except Tutu the owl and the push me pull you. And the following night, a Friday, it was agreed that they should toss a coin, the doctor's penny that had a hole through it to see which of these two should tell a tale. If the penny came down heads, it was to be the push-me-pull-you, and if it came down tails, it was to be Tutu's turn. The doctor spun the coin, and it came down tails. All right, said Tutu. Then that makes it my turn, I suppose. I will tell you a story of the time, the only time in my life, that I was taken for a fairy. Fancy me a fairy," chuckled the little round owl. Well, this is how it happened. One October day, toward evening, I was wandering through the woods. There was a wintry tang in the air, and the small furred animals were busy among the dry rustling leaves, gathering nuts and seeds for food against the coming snow. I was out after shoe-mice myself, a delicacy I was extremely fond of at that time and while they were busy foraging they made easy hunting. In my travels through the woods I heard children's voices and the barking of a dog. Usually I would have gone further into the forest away from such sounds, but in my young days I was a curious bird, and my curiosity often led me into many adventures. So instead of flying away I went toward the noises I heard, moving cautiously from tree to tree so that I could see without being seen. Presently I came upon a children's picnic, several boys and girls having supper in a grove of oak trees. One boy, much larger than the rest, was teasing a dog, and two other children, a small girl and a small boy, were objecting to his cruelty and begging him to stop. The bully wouldn't stop, and soon the small boy and girl set upon him with their fists and feet and gave him a fine drubbing, which greatly surprised him. The dog then ran off home, and presently the small boy and girl—I found out afterwards they were brother and sister—wandered off from the rest of the picnicking party to look for mushrooms. I had admired their spirit greatly in punishing a boy so much bigger than they were. And when they wandered off by themselves, again out of curiosity, I followed them. Well, they traveled quite a distance for such small folk, and presently the sun set and darkness began to creep over the woods. Then the children thought to join their friends again and started back. But being poor woodsmen, they took the wrong direction. It grew darker still, of course, as time went on, and soon the youngsters were tumbling and stumbling over roots they could not see, and getting pretty thoroughly lost and tired. All this time I was following them secretly and noiselessly overhead. At last the children sat down, and the little girl said, "'Willie, we're lost. Whatever shall we do? Night is coming on, and I'm so afraid of the dark.' So am I, said the boy. Ever since Aunt Emily told us that spooky story of the bogey in the cupboard, I've been scared to death of the dark. Well, you could have knocked me down with a feather. 
Of course you must realize that was the first time I had ever heard of anyone's being afraid of the dark. It sounds ridiculous enough to all of you, I suppose, but to me, who had always preferred the cool, calm darkness to the glaring, vulgar daylight, it seemed then an almost unbelievable thing that anyone could be afraid merely because the sun had gone to bed. Now some people have an idea that bats and owls can see in the dark because we have some peculiar kind of eyes. It's not so. Peculiar ears we have, but not eyes. We can see in the dark because we practice it. It's all a matter of practice. The same as the piano or anything else. We get up when other people go to bed and go to bed when other people get up because we prefer the dark. And you'd be surprised how much nicer it is when you get used to it. Of course, we owls are specially trained by our mothers and fathers to see on very dark nights when we are quite young. So it comes easier to us. But anybody can do it, to a certain extent, if they only practice. Well, to return to the children, there they were, all fussed and worried and scared, sitting on the ground, weeping and wondering what they could do. Then, remembering the dog and knowing that they were kind to animals, I thought I would try to help them. So I popped across into the tree over their heads and said, in the kindliest, gentlest sort of voice, to it, to who? Which means in our language, as you know, it's a fine night. How are you? Then you should have seen those poor children jump. Oh, said the little girl, clutching her brother around the neck. What was that? A spook? I don't know, said the little boy. Gosh, but I'm scared. Isn't the dark awful? Then I made two or three more attempts to comfort them, talking kindly to them in our language. But they only grew scareder and scareder. First they thought I was a bogey, then an ogre, then a giant in the forest, me, whom they could put in their pockets. Golly, but these human creatures do bring up their children in awful ignorance. If there ever was a bogey or a giant or an ogre, in the forest or out of it, I've yet to see one. Then I thought maybe if I went off through the woods to witting and to hooing all the way, they would follow me, and I could then lead them out of the forest and show them the way home. So I tried it, but they didn't follow me, the stupid little beggars, thinking I was a witch or some evil nonsense of that kind. And all I got from my to witting and to hooing all over the place was to wake up another owl some distance off who thought I was calling to him. So, since I wasn't doing the children any good, I went off to look up this other owl and see if he had any ideas to suggest. I found him sitting on the stump of a hollow birch, rubbing his eyes, having just got out of bed. "'Good evening,' says I. "'It's a fine night.' "'It is,' says he. "'Only it's not dark enough.' What were you making all that racket over there for just now, waking a fellow out of his sleep before it got properly dark? I'm sorry, I said, but there's a couple of children over in the hollow there who've got lost. The silly little duffers are sitting on the ground, bawling because the daylight's gone and they don't know what to do. My gracious, says he, what a quaint notion. 
Why don't you lead them out of the woods? They probably live over in one of those farms near the crossroads. I've tried, I said, but they're so scared they won't follow me. They don't like my voice or something. They take me for a wicked ogre and all that sort of rot. Well, says he, then you'll have to give an imitation of some other kind of creature, one they're not scared of. Are you any good at imitations? Can you bark like a dog? No, I said, but I can make a noise like a cat. I learned that from an American catbird that lived in a cage in the stable where I spent last summer. Fine, says he. Try that and see what happens. So I went back to the children and found them weeping harder than ever. Then, keeping myself well hidden down near the ground among the bushes, I went, Meow, meow, real cat-like. Oh, Willie, says the little girl to her brother, we're saved. Saved, mark you, when neither of the boobies was in the slightest danger. We're saved, says she. There's Tuffy, our cat, come for us. She'll show us the way home. Cats can always find their way home, can't they, Willie? Let's follow her. For a moment Tutu's plump sides shook with silent laughter as she recalled the scene he was describing. Then, says he, I went a little further off, still taking great care that I shouldn't be seen, and I meowed again. There she is, said the little girl. She's calling to us. Come along, Willie. Well, in that way, keeping ahead of them and calling like a cat, I finally led the children right out of the woods. They did a good deal of stumbling, and the girl's long hair often got caught in the bushes. But I always waited for them if they were lagging behind. At last, when we gained the open fields, we saw three houses on the skyline, and the middle one was all lighted up, and people with lanterns were running around it hunting in all directions. When I brought the children right up to this house, their mother and father made a tremendous fuss, weeping over them, as though they'd been saved from some terrible danger. In my opinion, grown-up humans are even more stupid than the young ones. You think, from the way that mother and father carried on, that those children had been wrecked on a desert island or something, instead of spending a couple of hours in the pleasant woods. "'However did you find your way, Willie?' asked the mother, wiping away her tears and smiling all over. "'Tuffy brought us home,' says the little girl. "'She came out after us and led us here by going ahead of us and meowing.' "'Tuffy,' says the mother, puzzled. "'Why, the cat's asleep in the parlor in front of the fire. Been there all evening.' "'Well, it was some cat,' says the boy. "'He must be right around here somewhere because he led us almost up to the door.' Then the father swings his lantern around, looking for a cat, and before I had time to hop away, he throws the light full on me, sitting on a sage-bush. "'Why, it's an owl!' cries the little girl. "'Meow!' says I, just to show off. "'To it! To it! Meow! Meow!' And with a farewell flip of the wing I disappeared into the night over the barn roof. But as I left I heard the little girl saying in tremendous excitement, "'Oh, mother, a fairy! It was a fairy that brought us home. It must have been, disguised as an owl. 
At last, at last I've seen a fairy. Well, that's the first and last time I ever expect to be taken for a fairy. But I got to know those children quite well. They were a real nice couple of kitties, even if the little girl did keep on insisting that I was a fairy in disguise. I used to hang around their barn nights looking for mice and rats. But if those youngsters ever caught sight of me, they'd follow me everywhere. After bringing them safely home that evening, I could have led them across the Sahara Desert and they'd follow, certain in their minds that I was the best of all good fairies and would keep them out of harm. They used to bring me mutton chops and shrimps and all but the best tidbits from their parents' table, and I lived like a fighting cock. Got so fat and lazy I couldn't have caught a mouse on crutches. They were never afraid of the dark again, because, you see, as I said to the doctor one day when we were talking over the multiplication tables and other philosophy, fear is usually ignorance. Once you know a thing, you're no longer afraid of it. And those youngsters got to know the dark, and then they saw, of course, that it was just as harmless as the day. I used to take them out into the woods at night and across the hills, and they got to love it, like the adventure, you know, and thinking it would be a good thing if some humans, anyway, had sense enough to travel without sunlight, I taught them how to see in the dark. They soon got on to it when they saw how I always shaded my eyes in the light of a lantern so as not to get the habit of strong light. Well, those young ones became real expert not so good as an owl or a bat, of course, but quite good at seeing in the dark for anyone who has not been brought up that way. It came in handy for them, too. That part of the country got flooded one springtime in the middle of the night, and there wasn't a dry match or a light to be had anywhere. Then those children, who had traveled all that country scores of times in the dark with me, saved a great many lives. They acted as guides, you understand, and took the people to safety because they knew how to use their eyes and the others didn't. Tutu yawned and blinked up sleepily at the lantern hanging above his head. Seeing in the dark, he ended, is all a matter of practice, same as the piano or anything else. End of Part 3, Chapter 7